0: John and Steve are uh, brilliant, brilliant minds, and they uh, uh, love what they do. And you are the fact that you found these guys says so much about you. And I would uh, just encourage you to stay within this beautiful gold mine that you've discovered. It's going to help you so much. I go to the same sources that uh, you do. Uh, I consider uh, John one of my one of my greatest mentors. And welcome back to On Coaching. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. As you just heard, man, I feel good after getting that intro. Yeah,
1: very, very generous intro from our good friend, Mike Smith.
0: <laughs> so if you're listening and you're wondering and you're saying, where did this, you know, where did these accolades, these kind words from Mike Smith come from? Well, John has been spending time putting in the work, going behind the scenes, getting the goods from Mike himself, all sorts of brilliant insights from the man who has won too many NCAA cross country titles to count. I just forget now because it just seems like an inevitability, which says a lot because it's. It's hard to win one, but it's much harder to repeat and and keep that going. And to make everyone so, feel
1: like they're like competing for second place, you know, like
0: yes, mm. yes. So where where did those come from, John? Where did that? Where, why do we have coaching this?
1: Mike Smith tapes three volumes. You guys know I've been hyping it up, and they've been dropping. If you're in the scholar program, you've already listened to all three of them. They have gone out. I mean, the response has been phenomenal. You understand after listening to these tapes why NAU is such a tough program to beat the extra dimensions of Mike Smith's coaching and philosophy, um, not just in training of runners, but also of being of service to the people in his classroom, which are the student athletes that are under his watch at NAU in the cross-country track and field programs. It's a beautiful, beautiful deep dive insights that are you don't get with the superficial like hey let's just go on a podcast and I'll ask you QA da da, da da these are two good friends who've been through a lot of things together just talking sitting down and Mike and I are happy to give the people what we want and share it with the universe but you only 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 can access these if you're a member of our scholar program.
0: That's right. Get behind the scenes stuff. Those conversations, you know, what I love about them is that they're only conversations that friends could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meaning, meaning, you know, the difference between, and we know this, when we interview maybe a coach on here that we don't know that well, that we kind of know, but don't know that well, the conversations, like we try and push them, but they stay on kind of a superficial level. Yeah. But when you have that friendship and that long years of, of back and forth, you're able to go deeper and get to the stuff that matters and mine that gold. And, John, you and Mike have mined that gold. So if you're interested and you say, oh, man, what is this stuff? Only place to get it. Scholar program.
1: And after listening to this, you're going to see why I like to call Mike Mr. Thanksgiving. Because when he shows up to the table, his main concern is that everybody eats. Everyone's belly is full. Everyone's happy. Everyone's well-nourished. And he well ensures that that nourishment has come through in these tapes, giving you mind-blowing insight. Like, listening to it. I mean, this is a guy I talk to, text regularly. I'm like you thought of it like this, you look at it from this point of view, how would, yeah, no wonder you're so good.
0: My goodness. <laughs> exactly. So get on board. You get that good stuff. We're always trying to push the boundaries and give stuff to make you a better coach. Cause that's what it's all about. So, you know, if John has to drive 20 hours down to Flagstaff, each he's way get
1: uphill done. in monsoons, I almost died, man. Like it was hail, thunder, like torrential downpour. I'm like, this is August in Arizona? What? <laughs>
0: That's right. John is risking life and limb to get the good. So. I just imagine him just carrying the old school, just carrying the old school tapes and be like, oh, I can't lose these. This is so valuable. You know, this, this is it. So he he went through the, the hero's journey to get out on the other side and give you guys the good. The new so, world,
1: yes. If you're tired of your old world and you don't want to go through that transition period, just the tapes are here to transport you immediately to that new world. <laughs>
0: I I love it. All right. So speaking of something that actually kind of is mentioned in the tapes, we're going to go deep on, which is the fitness measurement fallacy.
1: Mm, yeah. Oof.
0: Which is, I think, so here, I think a couple things stand out to me, which is one is that we often mistake. Well, what is the fallacy? We often think that there is a single, and Mike talked about this: is there is a single measure that tells us that we're fit, mm-hmm.
1: or that I think we, we have a this moment, or workout, or yeah. race to validate there's, everything?
0: Yes, there's just this thing, and you see this in how people approach races, right? Because after they have a successful one, they'll be like, this is it. I'm fit. I've proved myself. And then after on the flip side, which as coaches, you hear this a lot, you have a poor race and then someone will just be like, I'm just not fit. I don't have the fitness. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be. Why? Because the mistake, the race is the singular thing, Mm -hmm. that moment that either validates their fitness or not. When in reality... It's nuanced and complex, and that you could have a good or a bad race for a variety of reasons. And if you put all of the emphasis on that single thing, then you know you're putting it in the wrong area, which can set you up for um, disappointment and going down the wrong training rabbit holes.
1: Yeah, I mean it's important to you know kind of piece together how we got here, right? This kind of equation or formulaic concept of if I do. These may work at this much intensity for this duration, for this long, then that equals this. And while it's a really, really nice um, concept and idea, it, the math just doesn't add up in real time. Like there's, it's ballparks, like it's, you're kind of around this area in the zip code, but we as human beings crave the one thing we can't have, which is predictability and control. And this is a way to essentially sell books and essentially sell material to people by um, uh, leveraging that insecurity and that desire for predictability and control and say, if you just do these workouts at these paces, it equals this fitness guaranteed. And you know, the reality is it's, it's not guaranteed.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the human condition. Yeah right as we we need to have this sense of control and actually i'm going to take it broader is if you look at uh psychology there's all these theories that show that like when we feel uncertain or threatened or what have you we reach for areas of control and what we often do is we reach for I'll call it the candy version mm-hmm. so the thing that gives us like it makes us feel you know, satisfied maybe in that that moment where it's like, "Oh, this is it! I have control over this thing. This this gives me," in but it it doesn't leave us satisfied over the long haul because it's not real. And I think the same thing applies when we look at training. Often, as we grasp onto ideas and even coaching styles that promise us, you know, predictability, and they say, you know. This, if you do this, you're going to have a 98% chance of success or whatever have you, you know, some guarantee, you know, And the reality is it life is, doesn't work like that. And the problem is when we, here's, here's, okay, you're probably listening. You're like, okay, I get it. You know, not everything is under your control. Well, what's the problem is, the problem is this is when we set it up like that, it pushes us to look at the wrong things. So for in- instance, if we say, okay, the race didn't go well, so that tells us that like we did the wrong formula, will we go back and correct all? And we look only at the workouts instead of maybe everything else around that race, right? Have the workouts, you know, even from a physical standpoint, have we ab- absorbed them? Have we allowed the fatigue to dissipate so that we can express our fitness. We look at it from a psychological standpoint, a stress standpoint, a tactics standpoint, a competition standpoint. And when we simplify things to the formulaic, what happens is it just tells us to look back at the formula and, and where the formula might have, where we applied it wrong, because the formula itself can't be wrong.
1: It comes down, right, to are you chasing stats or are you chasing competition? And that's the hard thing about running in general is you can easily go chase the stats, how fast, pace, etc., to make it seem like everything's in your control. But the reality is there is a competitive spirit no matter where you are on the pack, mid-pack, back-pack, front-pack, to running and racing and competing. It's, that's why we call it a race. We don't just call them like... You know, singular time trials where everyone, like Tour de France, goes by themselves one after another with no one else around you, right? And when we take that approach, what we try to do is create this illusion of control when we have to be receptive and ready and capable to have this capacity at our disposal to be able in the moment to respond to the climate around us. And the climate includes the actual physical weather what people are doing, the course itself, the terrain, et cetera. And oftentimes, the justification for doing something is that, oh, this keeps you fit, this gets you fit, this does this, right? And, you know, Mike and I talked a lot about this in um, the, the tapes is what, you know, we have to undo is the modality from a mechanic standpoint of all this slow jogging, easy running to get this aerobic conditioning, but that comes at a mechanical cost. So that's why drills, wickets, sprinting year round, speed work, etc. Those things are all really important because those postures and positions help to, you know, offset the mechanical uh, limit, limitations or ranges of motions that happen from going and running very easy or slowly for 90 minutes. And if that's your sole justification for uh, preparation, getting fit and training, and you're measuring your conditioning capacity, but you're not measuring your mechanical or coordination capacity, again, we've come lopsided and one-sided, and we end up paying a price.
0: Yeah. it. You know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to as well is, Whatever we measure, we tend to value. So if, you know, miles per week is measured, we will value that. And that has kind of skewed um, what is actually important uh, to a degree on things. It's not saying that, you know, volume or whatever isn't important, but it's an easy thing to kind of quantify and and track on. It's much harder to quantify And track on um efficiency or like movements. There's no easy metric you can kind of assign to it.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, don't, you know, mistake correlation for causation type thing, right? Like I've had athletes who they're counting their 40 meter sprint flies into their weekly mileage total. I'm like, stop, this makes no sense. Like that's not what the situation is about. But it counts as my like or the recovery jog between, you know, a set of something on an interval session as part of their weekly miles. Like, I mean, you just scratch your head, you go, all right, we have kind of misconstrued or misinterpreted what track your miles means, right? we talk about this a lot, you know, how Lydia saw, say, marathon training as a specific thing at a specific intensity and jogging was everything else. And you could do as much as you want, but we don't count it as training. And we don't count it as the actual labor that is inducing a stress because that stuff's not stressful, right? People will um, snarl, give me snarky comments on Twitter when I say easy running is not training because it's not. It shouldn't be. It 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 shouldn't quantify as that. It shouldn't be a stress. It should be a recovery modality, just as massages. Do you count your hour of massage as a stress because there are stressful applications and um, uh, enhancements that, you know, occur from having the soft tissue broken down and, you know, uh, soft muscle pulled apart or what have you, right? That is a low grade stress. So we get in this really murky water where it's like when we don't know what matters, everything matters. Versus when we really have a clear uh, clarity and power over what matters, we concentrate on that and just realize everything else is just kind of, um, you know, um, a little bit of spice or a little bit of a cherry on top.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting and if you look at, for instance, I was looking the other day at Canova's uh, training of Moses Mosop, which we have in the scholar program. But if you look at how he classified it because we all use classification systems, but he classified it where I think anything less than 6,10 miles, were recovery. So six, ten mile pace were recovery. and that was something that was a large part. That was forty percent of the training, something like that. And it didn't, you know if you look read um Canova's uh, training, I forget from somewhere else he essentially said like re- recovery is not about fitness. And then I think it was from like five thirty to six ten pace, something like that is like the general fitness for him that was where general fitness began right um and then you get you know more to support specific etc but that is a often different way of looking at things than um through sometimes what we look at in in kind of the us version and the other thing i i think i've seen where this pops up a lot john is you've seen the proliferation of um, zone type training and the, you know, especially from the 80, 20 model from Seiler, which I love Seiler's work. I think it's brilliant, but like everything, we have these downsides. And when we classify into zones, what happens is this, is we start to emphasize those zones as if they are, if they have, uh, the, um, direct kind of, you know, impact.
1: Yeah. People you know? start freaking out. They're like my heart rate was this, yeah. Oh my God, I'm not in my right zone for this run or this session. And it's like, that's okay. The body fluctuates. It's fine.
0: So, you <laughs> know, it's funny you mentioned this. I, I posted not too long ago and I, I went on, I think it was like a six mile run. Okay. And it was in Houston, Texas humidity. It was a, just a crazy humid morning. So I strap on the heart rate. I say, I want to see what happens here. And I was running like, I don't know, 7.45 pace. Okay, so easy, um, which is slow for me even still. And, you know, I spent like the majority of that six-mile run in zone three and four on heart rate. And then I post that picture online on Instagram and people flipped out on me. They were like, this is too hard. This is like a threshold or higher stimulus. Like, what are you doing? Because I was just like, you know, heart rate, sometimes you don't pay attention to it. Like when it's in Houston and it's humid as hell. And, and people flipped out. And I was explaining, and and some people couldn't get it. I was like, this is 745 pace. I'm breathing. I could have a full conversation if I wanted to. It's." The easiest of easy, it doesn't feel that hard. My heart rate is up because my body is saying it's humid as hell. You're not cooling. We're going to divert more blood flow to the skin because we need to cool you because it's hot and humid. But that doesn't reflect the actual load on my muscles, all of that, or the stress on muscles, like local stuff that just reflects the load. On my heart, essentially cardiovascularly, but it doesn't reflect anything else. And my point was to kind of say, hey, we gotta broaden out of this zone kind of world, because it might help in a lot of in many places, but it can also distract and distort and give you the wrong feedback. But there was there were a lot of people who, you know, got it. And there were a lot of people who just couldn't break out of that zone mindset of like, no, easy is zone two. This is where I train at. If I go, my heart rate goes out of this, I'm no longer training this ath- attribute and the workout is ruined. And that can get in the way, it backfires. Yeah. And,
1: you know, a lot of the stuff too is um, predicated off of cycling um, research and best practices. And mm-hmm. cycling has a different set of stimuli, a different set of um, responses from the body, because unlike other common endurance sports, uh, like running or swimming, there's very little fascial or reactivity of the connective tissue at play because you're not, you know, pushing against some hard, you know, difficult mass, uh, whether it be the water, whether it be the ground, what have you. are not interacting with that kind of like shock, so to speak, um, and your body's trying to reinterpret that and reuse some of that to help sustain uh, the locomotion capacity. So when we look at cycling, you know, I'm always Now more than ever, I'm very um, uh, sensitive and hesitant to look at cycling physiological studies or data and make a direct translation to running or swimming because of that lack of uh, interaction, elastic interaction with, um, you know, the ground or the, the water. So it may be true in cycling world, but in this running and swimming world where we have that Requirement, and we have that uh, environmental reality. There's other factors at play that can influence one's ability to uh, move fast, move well, um, you know, do it at a low cost. Again, if running economy is a lot better for a variety of reasons, right? Better harnessing of the fascial slings, better um, strength capacity or coordinate coordinative capacity um, because you're working on kind of sprinting or mechanics year-round, you're running wickets, etc. That does have an influence. So we tend to, again, like we said, the swing all the way in the direction of hey, we're just going to measure our level of conditioning per the cardiovascular requirement uh, and pulmonary uh, requirement. But there's other things at play that we might not be able to have such a cut and dry quantification of. That the art of the craft
0: of coaching. Becomes really important. So, so this is it. This is interesting, and I'm glad you brought this up because if you look at, let's say, the volume of training it's spent for cyclists, swimmers, cross country skiers um, v- versus runners. All of those sports are more like they spend more volume in terms of hours. Yeah, spent duration, doing that time activity. duration. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. And I think this is an important point because. When you look at that, well, why don't runners do more? Well, because our sport, our limiting factor often isn't the just cardiovascular of, you know, we're going to develop this, what have you. Our limiting factor in both the training volume and intensity is a mechanical. Is gravity, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 gravity. And those other sports don't have to fight it or deal with it to the degree. So when we look at so what does that mean? Let's bring it back to heart rate. When we look at cycling, you know, if you is heart rate, maybe a can it be a better indicator of fatigue? Maybe because like your limiter in terms of how much you can do is just overall fatigue, which is is sometimes tied a little bit more to HRV or heart rate or whatever have you because you're just spending as much time as possible in the saddle kind of going through those workouts because you don't have the gravity, muscular damage, eccentric damage, etc. That that a runner has to deal with. So what that means is, in this case, that indicator that might work decently well in a sport like cycling – doesn't work as well as in running because that is not the thing that A is our our kind of limiting factor. And then B, often the thing that we are actively, you know, training to be able to utilize. And that's,
1: you know, studies like that or interdisciplinary approaches or interdisciplinary inputs do need to be digested with a grain of salt. And the reality is all these studies, concepts, Um, you know, literature is very neat and tidy. I've never met a training process on the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, season-to-season that is that neat and tidy. It is messy, friends. It is very messy. There, You're dealing with a fluctuating uh, entity that's called a human being. There's ups, there's downs, and you have to be okay riding those waves, right? And sometimes, like, there's a time to chunk a lot of stress, whether it's you know, from a micro standpoint within your training week, or even maybe a meso standpoint within a, a period or a block of training. But then, the, you, know, Steven, you know, I and everyone else has preached for so long, it needs to be followed by a chunk of recovery from the training stress. So this chunk approach, in general, makes sense. Now, what are people's capacities to be able to tolerate, withstand, and then adapt and digest these chunks of stress and chunks of recovery? That all depends a lot of things that might be in our control and also a lot of things that might be out of control. And that's where the sensitivity to this comes into play because essentially the way I look at it is this kind of like, um, you know, fitness measurement fallacy is people who lack that sensitivity, whether it be to inexperience, whether it be just to having a closed or, you know, non-growth mindset um, about these things, they tend to, leverage and anchor their practice on these quantifiable markers and measures. And we use that to color and shape and help sculpt the landscape of interpretation. But at the end of the day, like as a coach, you know, when you've been doing it long enough and knowing what you're preparing an athlete for, the markers of fitness are not one thing. It's a collection of multiple things taken over a uh, long time horizons that just kind of add up. And then you go, oh man, this person's ready to roll. Why? Well, it's not this one workout. I mean, this one workout was kind of the explanation point on this. Like it gave me, you know, a lot of confidence and certainty into it. But it was actually these preliminary steps, these preliminary workouts, you know, over the course of two weeks, three weeks, months, what have you, that created this like awareness of like, all right, time to take the bun out the oven. Let's go.
0: Yeah. And I think what we're saying here is as coaches, we need to be able to zoom back out because what happens is we, uh, we often over index on the one workout or one thing telling us everything that we need to know about fitness, but it really is about accumulating these, these stressors and um, such over time and seeing and, and putting them together over time to see what they, uh, they develop into. And, You know, again, it comes back to me as like the experience we've had as coaches is so many of us have had those moments where athlete struggles in a workout and is just like, Oh, my fitness, I'm not ready to race. (laughs) Like I'm I'm done for. This is it. It's the end. And you know, what we as coaches have to do is provide perspective. But I think that even applies to us. As coaches, when we're evaluating training is often what happens is too often is we look at the one workout and if it went exceedingly well, we think, oh, he's ready or she's ready. Or if it went poorly, we're like, oh, no, we've got to do X, Y and Z instead of zooming out and seeing, well, this gives me one indicator. What does everything else tell me? Like, what are the other indicators of fitness or performance? Like, where are they pointing me? And does this, do I need to have a course correction or not? Yeah,
1: we often in the West, right, we have an achievement bias versus the reality is we should have a a progression or progress bias, right? And Mm. so when you talk about achievement, it's like these workouts are achievements. And, you know, unfortunately, the exposés that are like flow tracks workouts of the week or whatever, you know, sends a kind of superficial message that, Man, you got to do these spectacular things in training to be able to do these spectacular things in racing. And it's like, no, all you got to do is be solid, not spectacular. You'd be surprised at how not exciting, not ambitious a lot of like training is for people who are competing at the highest level. It is live like a clock, punch it every day, day in and day out, you know, no big deal. Just a little bit globally adds up to a lot over the long haul and while it seems simple and easy to digest, you know in theory the reality is anxiety creeps in and we want achievement we want to say hey look all this work needs to be validated by this race or this race or this workout and see see look I, i'm much better okay i'm here they're ready to go they're ready to go i go i i still don't necessarily know for sure when someone's ready to go <laughs> but you hear that all the time right and i feel like We've fallen um, kind of victim to the sensationalism and clickbait that's out there by only giving hype, you know, or press, or publicity on a mass scale to these spectacular, phenomenal, mind-boggling workouts. When the reality is, we uh, you know again need to be a little bit more humble and a little bit more patient and think about the progressions. Always, always think about the progressions. That is, you know, when you set a workout. You want to say, "All right, we're going to revisit something like this continuously or sustainably throughout a training period or a season. How should this look and progress? And it might not be: Is the time faster every time you do a session? Is is the control better? Is there less um, panting? Is, as Mike would say, is the moving of oxygen better? And does the athlete just, hey, you know, it's not a big deal type workout?" before the peak race or championship, when, when you first introduced it, it was this five alarm, the house is burning down. Oh my God, this is so hard. That to me is a lot better indicator of uh, fitness than, you know, looking to those very easy quantifiable physiolo- physiological, markers, which again, we don't ignore, we use to help color and sculpt, but it need we need to blend that art and science because coaching is, always, is and always will be a craft.
0: Yes, it, it always is. I think it's that blending of art and science that is the key on all of this. And what we're trying to say here is, like, you know, you've got to find that, that middle path, that path where you're able to see both sides of this. And, you know, John, I, I'd be interested in maybe taking this from the abstract to the, the practical on okay. So a high school or college coach is listening to this and they're saying, okay, I get it. Like I need to stop over indexing, stop saying like, oh, this one workout went great. Everybody's ready to go. Like what kind of parameters or barometers do, does that person utilize to understand and see the progression of their fitness?
1: It's good, good question, Steve. I mean, where I would go, you know, my response and how I would think about this is, I would look at, um, I would look at, again, mechanics, how well they're moving, because we are so bounded and wedded to that reality of gravity and, and running. And, you know, people can get things done, get steps accomplished. But the question is, are they productive steps? And what I mean by that is, Is the last 30 minutes of that long, long, long run really productive steps? It might be productive from a physiological, aerobic, energy, you know, fuel utilization standpoint, but are the steps productive? Are they moving well? And the answer might be no. And if the answer is no, then you have to do this cost-benefit analysis. I'm like, all right, what is this going to lead to then? if we continue to have poor steps integrated into the training program and it becomes a spiral where it's like a little niggle becomes a strain that becomes a, you know, stress reaction that becomes a fracture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or we create joint limited limitations and restrictions. If we don't have something to, you know, um, uh, it, like, daily hurdle mobility or wickets or you know uh squatting like and that's where like i think a lot of people uh kind of misunderstand why we want to do non-running activities because they look at okay what is the physiological benefit of doing three sets of five squats with 80 percent of you know your max um, load well not a whole lot <laughs> if we want to be honest, but the other things it addresses the other things it helps with from a general you know strength and stability motor unit recruitment uh, general mobility standpoint like really valuable, really helpful again to uh, kind of uh, complement all those sh- small shallow steps that we might take in that long run right so that's the thing like what does sprinting do from a physiology standpoint not a whole lot we know it's it's mostly anaerobic like it it is what it is but we got to get out of that lens we got to get out of that just only judging the value of training activity and training um, exercises for runners solely through this energy system lens
0: yeah no i i think i I um I think that that's important. Is that again? It's like bringing out the perspective, and I think, you know, here's how I kind of look at it: is the energy system lens tells us about the physiology, the where is our kind of fuel and retrieval and all that good stuff, but the mechanical tells us how can we express. Mm. Mm -hmm. that force you know and and you can have a you know a wonderfully working physiology but if it's got leaks everywhere right you're just wasting all your fuel right you're wasting everything and that's how i kind of look at those that mechanical expression as well as like well are we expressing our capabilities um In terms of you know the engine are we allowed or another analogy you could use is like you might have an engine with a lot of horsepower but can that horsepower be applied or or not or is it just kind of wasted and dissipated because of the chassis of the car and all that good stuff and everything else that goes around it um and i think that's that's what we're kind of looking at here is like how do we look at things holistically and say you know instead of just fitness being like okay they did this workout better or, or not and just getting excited about it is like where are they in terms of yes they're uh, they're cardiovascular yes they're kind of muscular or buffering capacity or whatever you want to call it yes until in terms of their movement patterns and inability to express The uh the capabilities that they have. Fitness also means in terms of their psychological preparation. Are they ready to prepare on race day or or perform on race day? Or is it they have these amazing workouts and they can't translate it to a race day because like you haven't done the work to psychologically prepare them to express their capabilities there? So it's like, again, zoom back out. And every kind of workout or test or what have you tells you a little bit, but you're really looking at this holistic view.
1: Yeah, I think that's important to pin, Steve, is that mental fitness side of it because one thing, you know, I, again, looking at Mike's training and talking to him a lot about this uh, when I was up busy with him is it dawned on me it's like, oh, it's a progression of in the beginning. The workouts are suffer fests. In the beginning, this is hard. This is, you're learning how to hurt. Like he's, you know, one thing he told me is like, yeah, Nico Young is showing up on Tuesdays and knowing Tuesday they're going to suck <laughs> in the beginning of the season, in the beginning when there's not a lot of racing going on, right? But then as we progress through the season, Where the hurt and the suck happens is in the races. So you're mentally callousing early on when you don't have the races. And then you're transitioning to focus that energy to racing. And it's a question of how bad do you want it, right? And sometimes the physiology can be amazing. The buildup can be amazing. And the athlete just isn't willing to hurt. And you have to understand, like, if you don't hurt, it's like you're getting away with murder in a race. I remember talking to Craig Ingalls once about running his first 5k and he's like oh yeah I just assumed the whole thing was going to suck every step of the way and it was gonna be the most hurt I've ever felt in my life and he goes you know and I got lucky because it didn't really start hurting until about two miles in so I only had to like you know suck it up for a mile but I was like oh that's a lot less than I thought right or the stories I've told about when Chris Zielinski was you know on fire And he would say, oh, yeah, after 200 years in, it sucked every step. But he was calloused and ready for it, right? And we we think that it should just be a walk in the park, easy peasy, because, oh, they make it look so easy. And it's like, no, there's nothing easy about what these high performers are doing. The reality is they have the focus and aptitude and preparation not to show their cards that they're in the Hurt Locker when they are in the Hurt Locker. You just don't know it because they don't have that grimace on their face because they understand like if I grimace on my face, it's actually energy being taken away that could be used uh, for competing. So I'm going to keep that relaxed, but make no bones about it. They are in the hurt locker suffer festing for sure when they're dealing at the highest level.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it is. It's preparing for that moment. And sometimes it does take like understanding and knowing that this is going to suck. And I think we can, we, we can sugarcoat that. And this is where I, you know, I'll bring the idea of like, this is why I still think it's important to do what, you know, I call see God workouts Mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, I get it a lot of workouts, once you get in shape, et cetera, should be, you know, say, have another rep left, all that good stuff. And that's true. But like, we have to do things that prepare us for the reality of the crucible. And the crucible often sucks. So like, you've got to go be put through it. So part of it is that psychology of, you know, am I prepared to handle the task at hand? And then, more so is as well as it's not just the task at hand, but am I prepared to handle the pressure or whatever have you? And this is something I think Mike talks about brilliantly in in those tapes, is that it's and in other podcasts we've done with him is that it's not just ready to perform and express that fitness and hey, you're fit. It's how are you gonna perform when the pressure is on, when it's the national championship and everyone is looking at you to get it done. Mm. Like that—that's the difference maker.
1: Yeah, and that's I think, you know, the beautiful thing is there's a lot of different paths and uh, mindsets and dispositions to solve that problem to you know make that difference a reality. Um, But we also have to remember too, like we can also be too heavy-handed and go the other way and do too many see God too many really tough things too often. You only got about at most one bullet a week to shoot, you know, um, maybe sometimes too, if you're in a calsing period and it's like, you know, like the medium dig cycles that I, you know, use at uh, sometimes I learned from Jerry Schumacher where it's like three hard workouts, you know, in six days, followed with fat recovery afterwards. Right. Um, for like four or five days, even a week. Uh, Just to get that last little oomph from base camp to the um, the peak of the fitness mountain, so to speak. Uh, But we often—I remember in college. I remember that was my biggest error as an athlete when I competed. Was I just went too hard too often, and I didn't realize like you only have so much emotional energy. You only have so much of a reservoir that once you shoot that bullet too much, you quote unquote burn out, and that's why i'm like ah you don't want to do a c god workout every tuesday and friday or you know tuesday and then race because it just at the end of the day it, cor- it corrodes you you just you are you're all cortisol so we got to remember that we can't be too heavy-handed with it and that's why it's like we want to progress and graduate from one direction in training as callousing to the actual like messiness of racing and the the one of the most brilliant things mike talks about too is uh in those tapes related specifically to cross country is He's trying to prep his um, athletes because he views cross country only as a team sport. There's no individual anything. It's just team five, seven people. Can we get it done? And it's not about this is our number one man. This is our number four man. They don't go around thinking that. It's rather of all right. We're getting you ready to be on any given day really solid and consistent to be num- to finish number ten to twenty at the nationals and we're getting you to be really solid to finish anywhere between number 15 and 25 at the national. So maybe that guy who they're trained to be number, who had that bandwidth that they deemed between number 10 and number 20 finishes 20th. And the guy who had that bandwidth between 15 and 25th finishes 16th. It doesn't matter that there was a supposed hierarchy within the team. It just matters. They got their task, their job, their requirement done within the bandwidth that was astutely um, prepared for and and described. I think a lot of people's mind would be blown by that because they really don't care. Like Luis Guevara, right? Number four on the team NCA team in the abbreviated uh, pandemic championships. Right. And then number four in the world in the 5k world championships. And Luis was happy both ways. (laughs) Like if you know Luis, like I know Luis, like he was spinning. He was like, cool. You know, it wasn't like, Oh, I wasn't our number one, man. That's going to hurt my, my contract offer. It's like, Nope, we got the job done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something brilliant to, um, getting rid of those pecking orders that often, often occur because like we're humans and we like hierarchies and we like to have someone on the top and like to know our role, but, When you reframe that role clarity as not, hey, you're the number one man, but like, this is the job that we need people to do, which is we need, you know, so and so, like, these people were training you to get between 20th and 35th or whatever have you, you know, like, that's the job. Like, that takes it away from what so often happens, which is, you know, you're our number two man, like, you have to do this. And that creates again this almost competition within the team. And I've seen this. I remember one of my early coaching years, one of my, I think it was my second year at Houston, um, going to a race. Our number one man has a bad race. And what happens is our number two, three, four, five, six, seven all had <laughs> bad races because they were all keying off of right, each other, Right. Yeah. Right. They they saw the number one person and they're like, you know, and he went out a little bit slower because like he wasn't having a great race and felt bad. So the number two is like, oh, I gotta, I'm a little too close. I gotta get slower. Number three, oh, I'm a little too close to this person, blah blah blah. Instead of executing on their strategy and their goals and their you know what they have you. So it it really is is psychologically, how do you free people up to get out of, you know, to get away from that kind of natural human component of hierarchy? Yeah. When I was training athletes, uh,
1: you know, at the post-special level, like I'd often talk about like, Hey, you know what training is really about training is really about elevating your shittiest performance. Like I want you to be confident that on your shittiest day out there, you can still qualify all the rounds and make the finals at the national on your shittiest day out there, you know, everything goes wrong, goes south. Like your, your warm-up's off. You don't have a cup of coffee. Uh, you eat something that is not agreeable with you. You have stomach issues like plan for everything that sucks. And yet you still can get at least this baseline. You know, you can get this baseline of performance or ability uh, done. Right. And when we think about it in those terms, Versus what we often think about is perfect scenario, like apex scenario, right? Spectacular. Oh my gosh. Okay. Everything was perfect. I had the warm up was good. My mindset was good. The weather was good. Like we create this Goldilocks um, essentially. Everything needs to be just right. Fairy tale, which is not the reality of the crucible of racing. So you need to be ready for the shit, as I called it. It's just like when you're in it and it's shitty, what can you do? <laughs> and that's, Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, uh, lean away, lean back out of that because we are so, so wrapped up in these fairy tale narratives that are propelling us as athletes as superheroes or this or that. And I was like, nope, regular ass people with a lot of shit going on in their lives. Very unpredictable from day to day because we're highly fluctuating, high pulsating beings. But at the end of the day, this, if you can just deliver that, that's the thing that matters most, and that's really you know Mike again talks about this in the um, uh, on coaching um, Mike Smith tapes that we just did. He goes, the highest virtue at NEU is to be someone we can count on, and he he outlines the steps, the preliminary steps to get to that point. But if we can count on this person to deliver this type of performance no matter what at the national meet on this day, that's a pretty high virtue. Yet a lot of times we go in saying, oh, what's the perfect Goldilocks, fairy tale, Hail Mary scenario where, uh, you know, the Moses, the seas part, right? (laughs) It's like, it's not reality. I've never seen that happen.
0: Yeah, you know, it it really is. This is maybe the point of this podcast is that we often get caught up in looking for that perfection and it gets gets in the way of good, you know, because like, what is good? It's showing up and no matter what like being able to reach X level, you know, and X level is often sustainable where if we show up and we're always like, okay, I need to have the everything aligned and I need to do this and reach my ceiling and blah, blah, blah. Well, that only happens on special days, you know, and we have very little control over when that happens. Mm -hmm. So our consistency especially from a team standpoint, but consistency is more important than the heroic one-offs. And I think, again, is how do you create that consistent mind, that consistency? Well, you emphasize it. And so often what we do is we don't. We emphasize the perfection of like, well, was this a huge PR, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which just tells us the best day ever. I remember talking to a sports psychologist who – I actually worked with Adam State with their legendary program for a while. And he told me, he said, you know, instead of uh focusing on on the PR, like what are your five like what's the average of your five performances? Yes. I was just gonna you say know? that.
1: Yes, a hundred percent.
0: And and it's like if you're five if you can raise that average of those five recent performances, then like you're going to do better. Like and what you do is well, people say, oh, but I've got to have the big goal. The ceiling is like, if your average is getting better, then that sets you up for when that day comes when it's like, oh, I'm good. You get to jump from a higher platform. You're ready to go. If all you're doing is consistently being like, you know, it's golden glory or, or not else, then what happens, and I've seen this so many times, is you just set yourself up where it's like, it's like boom or bust and your brain starts to expect bust because that's inevitably going to happen more often than than the boom because that's how performance works.
1: Yeah, it's it also goes to how you structure workouts in general and your mindset and how you structure, you know, the chapters or sections of a race. You know, one thing I really enjoy is this concept where it's like the first third of the workout is essentially like what I can already do. It's like, yeah, no no sweat this is not stressful we know this can be done it's essentially a glorified warm up right the middle third of the workout is actual all right now we're like on, riding the line not stepping over it but riding it and like it's it's a little bit of a, a grind a little bit of like oh, this is tough and then the last third of the workout is the exploratory part it's like all right let's see what we can do let's see where what you can you know embrace what you can accomplish let's get this stress to you know uh Make the stimulus happen. No expectations, just kind of go for it, right? Oftentimes, we think of races as this cumulative thing. Here's this PR of this time, but it's like let's look at the sections of it. How is that athlete handling the different sections? And that might tell you where uh, the um, lack of fitness on whatever level—mental, emotional, uh, physiological—lies. Like I've had athletes who. They lacked the emotional fitness or emotional patience to go at us, you know, really, really slow relative to what they felt in a marathon in the beginning because they got like, I felt good. I got excited. Like, of course, it's the beam, everyone feels good. Like, what we're trying to do is leverage, um, you know, your ability to have not only, you know, fuel and, you know, emotional bandwidth and psychological bandwidth for the last ten miles of the race. Not the who cares about the first ten. But we so often uh get confused and impatient short excited in that regard. So we've had to backtrack and work with athletes to say, no, look, you need to just run what feels slow, what feels like I'm not doing anything, what just feels really unexciting, uh, in the beginning, to give yourself a shot to actually have something to push with, to actually have something to grind with towards the end, because that's what's happening. You're getting to that that um that turning point in the race where the real racing begins and you have kind of blown your load so to speak getting, leading up to it for no good reason there was no point to it i just felt good so i just you know i just happened to run 15 seconds per mile faster because i was feeling good and then brr, you know last six miles you run 30 seconds per mile slower and it's just you it goes from a a, a run to a jog to a walk to a crawl <laughs>
0: Uh, It it really is having that and developing that emotional control. And for anybody who's ever competed at NCAAs and cross, like that's the entire game because there's like, you know, whatever, 250 people. It's wild. It goes out like a bat out of hell. Always. You're always surrounded. You're always getting passed or being passed. And you've got to develop like that emotional control to keep your mind, you know, calm and steady and all that stuff. Um, and if you don't like, it's a long road, and that's where I think, you know, teams like NAU or what have you have figured out how to do this and teach this and know this because, um, it's so easy in that environment to just kind of get either too excited or press too early. And then you have nothing when it actually matters and when it actually counts.
1: And that's the whole point of developing your um, and expanding your thought capacity, your thinking capacity, right? Thinking better. Yeah. Because when we think in either or terms, it's very singular, right? I've had people ask me, okay, what's the one thing Mike Smith has done to become a great coach? I go, <laughs> wrong question. It's the wrong thought process. It's the wrong question. So you're all making get the wrong answer. It's not as singular as that. It's, it's multi uh, factorial. It is multiple dimensions to it, right? It's not just one thing about Mike and his style and his philosophy of training and coaching. It's multiple things that are concurrently developed and congruently thematic throughout the course of the year. Um, I mean, but if we want that singular, Either or cut and dry. Do these main miles, not these main miles. Do these workouts at these times, not this time. Run this zone, not that zone. You know, run this pace, not that pace. And it seems like a very simple recipe, but that's why we have this podcast. That's why we have the scholar program. That's why you're listening right now because you know, like we do, that it the reality is, despite the literature, the books, what the lab coats say, it is not that cut and dry. <laughs>
0: It's always more complex. Yes. And you know, our message here on this podcast is not to be like, oh, it's complex. Who don't whatever it is. That's but exciting that it's so doing,
1: complex. Like, I get you know, I get fuel yeah. from that, Steve. I don't know about you.
0: To acknowledge, that's what I mean. And acknowledge and embrace that so that we can solve the problem instead of falling back on the comfort of being, well, if I do this formula i follow these workouts exactly if i run
1: this velocity that's so awesome
0: <laughs> yeah then i will perform at that at you know and that's not how it works and you see people that's not to say that
1: hey. they die on the cross because
0: they're saying this is the yeah. singular
1: way and like no that their method i don't know how that method worked because they're not doing this thing and it's like dude chill out it's not a war so <laughs>
0: Yeah. So one thing that I should say, and maybe this is a good kind of summary, wrap it up point, is that if someone tells you that their method doesn't work and it "quote unquote" has worked, you need to ask that person why. Right. So here's 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 the thing: is if you're selling the secret and this is how it works, and someone does the total opposite and has some success, there needs to be a why. So, for example, we can sit here and tell you, well, you know, uh, Bob Schul won a gold medal on almost all interval training. Well, why did that work? Well, it's not that interval training is evil. It's that, that Igloy and Schul figured out how to develop aerobically with very short intervals. So they were still satisfying all the buckets. You know, that you need to perform in a 5K, but they figured out a way how to do it that was different than everybody else that that seems to have been doing it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there has to be a reason, and you need to, like, this is, you know, I guess what I would say on this podcast, if if I just said, like, oh, this is how it works, this is the formula, well, what that does is it shuts me down from exploring the reasons why things that go counter to that work. And often in those things that go counter are gold and jewels where you're just like, oh, this works maybe just for these people or in this situation. But it gives me another tool in my tool belt to be able to develop people, Mm -hmm. which is what it's all about.
1: Yeah. And that's the tool belt or the toolbox. Like it's a constant updating, a constant polishing, like, you know, constant labor of love, like. The best way to understand a master coach at work is to see the subtle changes in their training season to season, year to year, this little nuance, you know, added or subtracted this little uh, enhancement uh, shifted from this time to that time, because it should, it should be organic like that. There should be a, a very steady evolution, not big sweeping changes necessarily, but also the, to the humility to go out and say, I don't know that I have it all figured out. Let me see what other people are doing. Um, you know, let's see what people are sharing. Let's see what's working. And to be told like, Hey, yeah, you are trying to do it, but you're doing it wrong. Like say with wickets, for example, my big thing with wickets for runners is we want to teach the athlete to put the foot down immediately in front of the oncoming wicket, not behind it or in the middle. You know, I, explain why because these angles and the reaction we get with these uh, reflex mechanisms and what have you and you know going and looking at peers and friends and saying hey i'm not trying to be a know-it-all i'm just trying to say the fact you're doing it in the first place is awesome that's like a step in the right direction that most are not even doing great now let's get the most bang for your buck for doing an activity by just shifting the point of emphasis from here to there and we do that then that starts to infuse the coordination and neuromuscular system with this enhanced ability because now we're leveraging more of the reactive mechanisms at play of the connective tissue versus leveraging more of the the muscles and the breakdown of eccentric um, contractions. That's all it is, right? But just be able to have the open mindset to hear that message is really important, I think, for uh, not only longevity, but also the success of our coaching practice year in and year out.
0: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I think it really is embracing that nuance and like opening up yourself to like understand the complexity, uh, because in order to simplify it for our athletes, we have to understand and, and wrestle with the complexity ourselves. So. If you want to know how to go deep and understand the nuance and see that we're not selling you a formula, but instead saying, here's all these successful coaches, here's how they do it, and they contribute, best place you can go, Scholar Program. That's right. I mean, when
1: when Steve and I start selling you as a formula or try to start saying guys supplements just turn us off delete us (laughs) like you know we have sold out you know (laughs) we have made the deal with the devil
0: (laughs) that's that's right that's very true so once that happens run away but for now we're not doing that we're trying to sell you the good stuff um which is just information. Yeah, so I mean, honestly, that the out. Mike
1: Smith tape is worth its weight in gold. Like, we could charge a thousand dollars. It's like for this ninety-minute seminar he essentially gives. And here, just to speak to the humility of Mike, you know, me kind of poking and prodding him. And here's just a glimpse at his process too. At first, he's like, "Man, why, why do I need to do? I don't know anything. Why am I going to do a podcast? I, I'm, I'm learning from." High school coaches on the scholar program, I'm learning from you guys, I'm learning for these coaches. I go, Mike, you have some stuff to share that's really unique. You're doing, you know, so encouraging him and saying, like, hey, look, it's a part of um putting grits in the mill, making sure everybody eats. And then it was like, All right, we're gonna have the scholars ask him questions. So we had all the scholars ask questions, and here's an insight into the thoroughness of Mike's thought process. He's like, All right, give me all the questions. We go down, we sit down for like an hour and just give him all the questions. He writes them all down. Say like, all right, cool. Let me think about these for a couple of days. So for about two, three days, he's just chewing on those questions, formulating concepts, coherent thought responses to them, and then it's like, I couldn't be like, hey, let's record, let's record, because like Steve and I are just ready to go, right? We process at a million miles an hour and he just flip the switch and do it. You know, for Mike, he processes a lot slower, and when he was finally ready, it was like, all right, man, let's hit record, and out his mouth just came gold and it was awesome. So (laughs) that's just like, it shows you everyone's process is a little different and we can all learn from it um, because all those different ways are highly successful.
0: Love it. So check it out. Thanks for listening. Get on those Mike Smith tapes. They're gold, only available in the scholar program.